morning, as Kay said, this is our penultimate message in our Dangerous Prayers series. Well, if you're with us uh, last weekend, you would have heard me speaking about the Dangerous Prayer, Teach Me Patience. And the point I made last weekend is that patience and pride often come hand in hand, where you discover impatience, pride is probably on parade, quite literally, not far behind. Well, following the sermon last weekend, Ruth uh, posted in our public chat so helpfully the words from Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 8. And it says this, finishing is better than starting. Patience is better than pride. Well, not only was that message a great summary or, or those verses a great summary of my message, but it was also affirmation that impatience and pride are often in an ugly marriage. Well, this weekend, our dangerous prayer is a perfect follow-on because today we're thinking about the prayer, Lord, humble me. You see, if we struggle with the disease of pride, then a little humility is surely the antidote. So as we get going on all this this morning, let's try and define what humility is and what humility is not. Well, the first thing we can say is that humility is not a weak and a wimpy thing. Some of the humblest people I know have been far from weak. In fact, many of them are incredibly courageous leaders. You see, there's an inner strength to be found in humility. But to harness that inner strength in a God-honoring way, we need to avoid one of two traps. The first trap is the trap of false humility. And the second trap, which arguably is worse, is the trap of boastful pride. A humble person um, doesn't think more highly of themselves than they ought to, and yet at the same time, they don't think of themselves too lowly either. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, offers a great definition of humility, which might not be the way that many of us might start to define humility. He says this, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. In other words, humble people don't have themselves on their minds all that much. And yet, too, at the same time, humble people know who they are in Christ, and they're bold and they are courageous, which is not the same thing as being brash and obnoxious or even full of pride. So true humility is not watering down or denying who you are, And yet, neither is it exaggerating who you are. Watering down who you are, your skills, your gifting, your character, and so on, is really false humility, which I guess is a form of pride in and of itself. Exaggerating who you are, your skills, your gifting, your character, is without doubt pride in its ugliest manifestation. Well, we've probably all seen people and met people, maybe we can even think of people now, who are shy and overly humble in front of other people. Or maybe, on the other hand, we've met individuals who are so full of pride that they insist on taking center stage all of the time. True humility, God-honoring humility, finds that sweet spot, which is somewhere between these two extremes. The author and the speaker, uh, Tim Keller, builds on C.S. Lewis's definition. He says this, The humble are kind and gentle, but but also brave and fearless, If you are to be humble, you cannot have one without the other, says Keller. Kind and gentle, yet brave and fearless. Brave and fearless, yet kind and gentle. 
This polarity of characteristics found in the truly humble is most clearly seen, of course, in the person of Jesus. Think about some of the labels that we use to describe Jesus. In Revelation chapter 5, verses 5 and 6, Jesus is referred to as both being the lion, but also the lamb. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus refers to himself as being gentle and meek, and yet all at the same time, he was the God of the universe who restrained his power in order to be like one of us. Hands that flung stars into space to cruel nails surrendered. We just sang the words of meekness and majesty. Meekness and majesty, manhood and deity, in perfect harmony, the man who is God. Lord of eternity, dwells in humanity, kneels in humility and washes our feet. This is our God. Now, of course, it goes without saying, doesn't it, that Jesus takes first place in the league of the most humble people who have ever lived. But the Bible tells us that second place goes to Moses. In Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, we learn that Moses Moses was one of the most humble people, or was the most humble man, on the face of the earth. But significantly, if you know his story, you'll know that Moses was not a weak, timid, walk-all-over-me type character, which is what you might begin to expect a humble person should look like. For Moses, humility was his strength, and his strength was his humility. For example, Moses goes before the most powerful man of that time, the Pharaoh king of Egypt, and with great boldness says to the king, I want you to let my people go. I want you to give up your entire slave labor force, the key to your economic and your military superiority, and I want you to do it quickly. Over and over again, the the scriptures tell us, and the Bible deliberately puts side by side humility and boldness, boldness and humility. Now, many of us might have concluded that there are opposite ends of the personality spectrum. And going by the world standards, perhaps we would think it's impossible to be both humble and bold at the same time. Maybe you can think of a few headlining political leaders who prove this to be absolutely so. And yet when we look at the example of Jesus and at the example of Moses, this counterintuitive boldness and humility combination become a powerful and a godly combination that quite literally can change the world. Well, let's look further into this whole theme of bold humility as we read the story of King Nebuchadnezzar. And in the story we're going to look at, he finally recognizes the difference between God and himself. His story is told in Daniel chapter 4 in the Old Testament, the section of the Bible at the beginning before the coming of Jesus. And in summary, Daniel chapter 4 is the tale of a proud man's journey to humility. Now, much as I don't want to admit it this morning, I see traits of Nebuchadnezzar's story in my own life. And maybe as we read it, you'll be able to identify with his story too. Those times when pride trips you up, or maybe even on the opposite extreme, when your false humility disrespects who God has gifted you to be. Now, you can find the book of Daniel by looking in the table of contents in the front of your Bible. Don't be afraid to use it. So let's read together the text, and then I'll explain the context in just a moment. Daniel chapter 4, we're going to read from verse 28. It says this, All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said this, 
Is not this the great Babylon that I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You'll be driven away from people and you'll live with wild animals. You'll eat grass like an ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is the sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and he ate grass like an ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, speaking for himself here, raised my eyes towards heaven and my sanity was restored. And then I praised the Most High. I honoured and glorified him who lives forever. Here comes his, his song or a poem or his declaration. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? And then Nebuchadnezzar finishes saying, at the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. So this man that we've just been reading about, Nebuchadnezzar, was the king of Babylon, which at the moment these events took place was the most powerful nation on planet Earth. And as a consequence, Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful man on the planet, and he absolutely knew it, didn't he? Nebuchadnezzar had uh, led his armies into Israel, and they'd overtaken Jerusalem. And the very first thing they did was to deport some of the most promising and intelligent young people and to send them back to Babylon and to train them in the culture and the beliefs of his kingdom. Now, you might recall the story that Daniel, along with Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, were among that group of young people who were deported. And the book of Daniel really is about how they continued to live faithfully for God, even whilst they were living in a pagan culture. At the very beginning of Daniel chapter 4, before the verses we read in verses 1 to 18, Nebuchadnezzar has this terrifying dream. It was a dream that was given to him by God, and in it were predicted the events that we've just read about in verses 28 to 37. But in the bit between that, in verses 19 to 27, the king had told this dream to Daniel. And Daniel had interpreted the dream, and Daniel had said to the king, would you please repent? Would you please live your life 180 degrees from the way that you're living it? Now, Nebuchadnezzar himself is telling us the story here in chapter 4. And in doing so, I think he gives to us three great principles that can help us address the sin of pride. The first is to be alert to pride. The second is to understand the consequences of pride. And then there's a third, which is to pursue the solution for pride. So firstly, be alert to pride. 
If ever you've read that story of the king's dream, you might remember that in God's vision to Nebuchadnezzar, there was this great tree. And all the birds and all of the animals came and they nourished and they were nourished by that tree and they were blessed by that tree. But then an angelic watcher comes along and orders for the tree to be cut down. But I wonder why. What did the tree do? Or more to the point, what did the person that the tree represents do? In verse 30, Nebuchadnezzar tells us the answer to all of these questions. He's busy walking around the roof of his palace, probably leading a group of his advisors and his friends. And he's strolling around boastfully overlooking this great city of Babylon. And he says to them, is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? Now, what's wrong with all that? Babylon, of course, was a great city. Archaeologists and historians tell us that it was a city of two million inhabitants. In fact, the walls of the city were so large that they could have races around the inside of the wall where chariots could go four four abreast. The walls were 87 feet thick and in places they were over 300 feet high. This is quite some city. It was a mighty city. Now, of course, Nebuchadnezzar is known historically for his building programs. Think of one of the the seven wonders of the world, the great hanging gardens. Babylon was a great city, but what was wrong with Nebuchadnezzar's statement was what Nebuchadnezzar believed about the source and about what Nebuchadnezzar believed to be the purpose of this kingdom. Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built? as a royal residence by the might of my power for the glory of my majesty. Wow, what a statement that is, full of me's and I's, not many we's and they's to be seen, are there? Nebuchadnezzar may well have just said, it's hard to be humble when you're such a great man as I am. You see, you don't need a degree, do you, in psychology to spot that this is pride on full display. The exaltation, the promotion of self, Our friend Neb here really fancied himself as being equal to God, if not being God himself. In his pride, Nebuchadnezzar is promoting himself while simultaneously de-emphasizing God and others. The Illustrated uh, Bible Dictionary says this. It's such a great and helpful statement. Pride refuses to depend on God and to be subject to him, but attributes to self the honor that's due to him, to God. There was no question at all whether Babylon was a great and a beautiful city. It absolutely was. The question was whether or not Nebuchadnezzar was going to give God praise and glory for the ability that God had given to him to build that city or whether he was going to take all of the credit for himself. Unfortunately, even though Nebuchadnezzar had had ample opportunities to see the power of God in the previous chapters, even though he'd been very clearly warned by God in the early part of this chapter, he still allowed himself to be lifted up with pride. No one could accuse Nebuchadnezzar, could they, of the the equal and opposite sin of false humility. You see, Nebuchadnezzar had a wrong view of God, he had a wrong view of himself, and he had a wrong view of of other people. If you want to spot pride in your life, then look out for those three things, because pride often involves those three things. And yet, biblical Christianity presents a set of compelling answers to each of those issues, which ought to keep us in our place and keep pride in check. 
Who is God? Well, we know that he's the sovereign, the powerful creator of the universe. He's holy. He's righteous. He's true. He's the king. He's the Lord. He's the God shepherd. There's no one like our God in the whole of the universe. You see, humility never loses perspective of God's awesomeness. And Nebuchadnezzar eventually recaptured that. But then there's the second thing. Well, who are we? Well, we're part of God's creation. Yes, we're a very unique part because we're made in the image of God and we're given a very unique purpose, which is to be good stewards of of creation, to, um, to enlarge that creation whilst bringing glory to God. We are not God, but equally we're not sewer rats or just food for worms either. Every day we wake up and we can use these hands to make things uh, which are good. But at the end of the day, when all of those things are made, we should turn and give glory to God for the ability and for the strength to make those things. We can use our minds to solve all sorts of very complex problems and to make progress in life. But through that process, will we give glory and honor to God for the minds that he's given to us? You see, understanding who God is and who we are puts us a long way down the road of overcoming pride. But so too does having a healthy understanding of other people too. And again, biblical Christianity has all the answers that we need for that. Other people aren't something to be used in the way that Nebuchadnezzar did. They're human beings to be loved and cherished and celebrated. The question isn't, who can I get to serve me? But instead, the question is, how can I serve somebody else? You see, pride seeks to de-emphasize God and to elevate self and to use other people. Biblical humility does the opposite. It seeks to honor God, to take the attention off of self and instead to love and to serve other people. We must be on the lookout for pride. It's ugly. But two, we need to recognize that pride has consequences, which is the second principle that flows out of our text this morning to understand the consequences of pride. Now, I suspect there are many people in our world who would sharply disagree with all that I've had to say so far this morning. In some ways, the scriptures are quite unique in, this, in their view of this topic. And so far, we've only been looking at the emphasis of the Old Testament, but by the time of Jesus, many had actually come to reject this Old Testament view and in fact had turned things totally around. The Greek world regarded pride as a virtue. And the Greek world said, well, humility is something actually which is quite despicable. And that's why it's so significant that when we get into the New Testament, the second half of the Bible, that the Bible writers universally side with the Old Testament view of humility. And in fact, um, by the time you get into the New Testament, society changed this whole thing completely around. The Greek world regarded pride as a, as a virtue, which is so interesting, isn't it? That in Mary's Magnificat, her song, Christmas is Coming, so I'm allowed to mention it, she says that God scatters those who are proud in the thoughts of their hearts. And then we go on to read, and this is truly significant as well, that Jesus presented himself as the one who was meek and lowly in heart, completely, completely counter to the cultural view of the day. When Jesus goes on in his adult ministry to describe the list of vices that flow from the evil of a person's heart, in Mark chapter 7, one of the items in his list is the issue of pride. The point is this, is that many would say 
that you don't need to work on this area in your life. There are no consequences here, so don't worry about it. In fact, pride is a virtue that you ought to, ought to cultivate. It's going to get you ahead in life. Well, let's allow Nebuchadnezzar for a moment to have a vote on this issue. I wonder what he would say. Well, he would say that the consequences of pride are great. Pride took him from the elevated position of human being made in the image of God at the top of the tree to an existence that was completely animal-like. I wonder if you saw that progression in verse 33. He was driven away from people to live like an animal. He ate grass like an ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like eagle's feathers and his fingernails were, were like bird claws. What an image this is. Nothing that even a male grooming session could fix. Many Bible scholars believe that Nebuchadnezzar had to be kept in some kind of iron cage or plane uh, or, or pen, rather, which explains the part of the vision in verse 15 that prophesied that a tree would be cut down, the stump would remain, but that stump would have to be enclosed with a band of iron. Can you see this picture in your mind? One minute you have a successful king with a sharp mind, albeit a proud heart, and then the moment those proud words come out of his lips, Nebuchadnezzar's proud mouth, which by the way was connected to his proud heart, the proud mouth connected to the proud heart, that's how it goes, he faced the consequences of his sin. And he looked and he acted like an animal. Proverbs 16, verse 18, pride goes before destruction, a proud spirit before a fall. Proverbs 29, 23, pride brings a person low, but the humble in spirit gain honor. You see, the consequences of pride are very serious. And it leads us to a question. Have I... Have you made this issue of overcoming pride the priority that it ought to be? Now, if this were the end of the story, all of this would be pretty depressing, wouldn't it? But once again, we're reminded in this book of Daniel, as we have been week after week after week after week in this teaching, that God is a God of mercy. And we're reminded again that God's grace is sufficient even for Nebuchadnezzar. And therefore, it's, if it's sufficient for him, it's sufficient for you and for I. The third step in our text is to pursue the solution for pride. In these remaining verses, we see several steps that Nebuchadnezzar took to deal with this issue of pride in his life. And the first thing that he did, the most important thing that he did is he sought to put God back into his rightful place. And to do that, he honors and he worships God. Listen to these words from the second half of verse 34. Nebuchadnezzar says, Then I praised the Most High. I honored and I glorified him who lives forever. To deal with pride, the first step is to put God back in his proper place, to honor him and to worship him. But then secondly, Nebuchadnezzar puts humankind in its right place. And you have the sense here that really he was speaking the words that he speaks in that, that song or that poem or that declaration as words over himself. He contrasts this awesome God with humanity. And in doing so, he elevates God back to the place where God deserves to be. In this moment, which is so beautiful, Nebuchadnezzar becomes a worshipper. But two, in this moment, Nebuchadnezzar becomes a recipient of the grace of God. 
And this morning I want to finish with this, which is the other Bible text for this morning, which comes from James chapter 4, verse 6. And it says this, but God gives us more grace, greater grace, we could say. God gives us more grace. That is why the scripture said, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Our God is the God who is the giver of grace, and it's a greater grace than the world can ever give. Our God is the God who never, ever stops unfolding his grace before us. If only we'll seek to live for him, if only we'll seek to honor him and to worship him. So if pride is your struggle this morning in a, in a big way or in a small way, I encourage you to pray today's, today's prayer. Lord, humble me. And then I challenge you to, to live like King Neb, to honor God, to take the attention off of yourself and to love and to serve other people. And as you do that, God is the God who will give us even more grace. He'll allow us to swim in the lavish pool of his grace. He'll forgive us, even for our pride. I need to know that this morning. I wonder if you do. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you this morning for this great story of King Nebuchadnezzar. Lord, I thank you that as he retells his story, he's so honest about the wrestle he has with pride. Thank you that you made him alert to that pride. Thank you too, Lord, that having experienced the consequences of his pride, that, Lord, you led him to the solution. And I thank you that Nebuchadnezzar's story is my story. It can be our story this morning. That when we lift you high, when we worship you, when we praise you, Lord, we can be recipients of your grace. Lord, I need to know that grace this morning. And I pray for my brothers, my sisters in Christ online with me this morning to pray that they will experience your grace too as they wrestle with pride. Be that boastful pride or be that the more subtle form of pride that comes through false humility. Lord, I pray, help us to see ourselves as you see us and somehow we'll find that sweet spot as we continue our journey with Jesus as our Lord and as our Saviour with our desire to be more like him. In Jesus' name, amen.